0: Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, But Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens we sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us, just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live, since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return, for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Amen. Let's pray for a moment. Dear Heavenly Father, enable us to focus, to listen. Your Word, accompanied by your Holy Spirit who is here is so powerful and true and able to do within us what nothing else can. So, Lord, we give ourselves for these short moments to listening to what You, our Lord and our God, would say. In Jesus' name, Amen. Unrealistic Expectations can lead to all sorts of problems. Is that right? Indeed, I might go so far as to say that false expectations or unrealistic expectations, especially when they're not communicated but just held privately, are a rich feeding ground for human chaos and human sinfulness and human relationships being fractured. I presumed we were going to do this today. Well, you never said that. My expectation was that we would do that. Well, am I a mind reader? How was I to know that you were thinking that would happen? I was brought up on the frequent repetition of the saying by my mother, blessed is he who expecteth nothing, and he won't be disappointed. And there's a certain amount of truth in that. So you could have unrealistic expectations, and you could avoid having unrealistic expectations by just having no expectations at all, and expect nothing, and then you're never disappointed. But I think our job this morning is to learn how to have Christian expectations, which is an altogether healthier position to adopt. First Thessalonians is a letter which teaches us to have Christian expectations expectations. So let me ask you directly this morning, what is your greatest expectation as a Christian believer? What is it that you expect to happen most certainly because you're a Christian believer? If what we believe in the gospel is true And if not, then I should stop and we should have coffee. But if what we believe in the gospel is true, then our expectations based on what is true are utterly realistic and should drive and motivate every aspect of our life as this little church family. If what I expect is right and certain, then we should share that expectation and have it communicated and owned between us. And so we should all be looking together ahead, expecting the same thing. So what is your number one expectation as a Christian believer? Ever since the beginning of the Christian church, the most Prominently taught and guaranteed Christian expectation is the physical bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be visible, the New Testament teaches us. Everybody will see it. It will be sudden, but not unexpected. We don't know when. He will return, but He will return, and it will be triumphant, for it is the risen King who has conquered death who will return to inaugurate the new creation with all His people. That, that return, that great day, that last day, as the Bible calls it, should be our number one Christian expectation. And it was in this area of expectations that the Thessalonians, Paul was worried, were having problems and difficulties. He was worried that they had taken their eyes off that goal, and so were going to cave in and wobble and wander off in all sorts of unhelpful ways. And so, our passage here, you, you notice at the beginning of it, Look at verse 19. What is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes? That coming again of Jesus. And then at the end of the passage, may he strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus Christ comes. There it is at the beginning and end, the the return, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the light of that, in these verses, Paul expresses with the deepest and most emotional language some of the turbulence and angst and experiences that we will go through as we wait expectantly for Jesus to come back. If that's what we're waiting for, then certain things follow first. And they're listed for you. Depth of relationships leads to huge angst for Christian people in the present day. If we, as Christian believers, are united in Jesus Christ and together, are the people who are hoping for and waiting for the return of the Lord Jesus and we're united in that, but the rest of the world does not share that expectation, then huge angst results amongst human beings in the present day. Look at uh verse nineteen again. What a, a shocking surprise um that verse holds for us. Verse 19 of chapter 2. Paul is asking a question. He's he's Paul is is longing to get to be with the Thessalonians, and it's a, a battlefield for him, spiritual battlefield. He's been prevented again and again and again for from being with them. That's verses 17 and 18. And then he says in verse 19, for what is our hope? Here's Paul saying, this is his expectation. What is our hope? Our joy? What is the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when He comes? What is the greatest peak of our experience on that great day when Jesus comes back. And the answer in verse 20 and at the end of verse 19 is a shock, or should be a shock, to our system. We imagine it will be like all the answers in children's addresses. It's Jesus. Jesus is our greatest joy. Jesus is our greatest crown and glory. Jesus is the peak That's not what he says, is it? Is it not you? Indeed, he says, you are our glory and crown. That is profoundly arresting language because Paul understands that so integral, are the relationships between Christian believers because we are united to Jesus? That on that great day of bridegroom Christ being united forever with bride the church, we cannot decapitate the body of Christ and think, oh, it's all just about Jesus. It's not, it's all about Jesus and his people. And for Paul to see the Thessalonians on that day rescued out of darkness and lostness will be the, he says, the pinnacle of the joy for him in Jesus. That's a remarkable thing to read. And if that's the depth of our longing and our expectation that when Christ comes back, we will be united forever with all his people… then huge pain and huge relief will be our daily experience in this world. Look at what he says further on in in verse… Five, you know, persecutions have come. He said, "Don't." I was worried that you'd be unsettled by these trials. You knew that we were destined for them. In fact, we told you that we would be persecuted, and we were. And because of that, verse verse 5 of chapter 3, I could stand it no longer. I needed to know if you were staying true to Christ. I was afraid that under trial you'd have wandered off and given up on your faith so afraid. The man was in anguish at the thought of these Thessalonians wandering away from Jesus. That is the most painful agony for a Christian to experience emotionally in this world. To see a believer wander away from Jesus is is a terrible source of sorrow. It's not the only source of sorrow, and there are other great sources of sorrow, but to see believers drift off is like plunging a knife in the Christian's heart because our expectation is that on the last day, they'll be there worshiping, And yet the joy and the relief for Paul when he finally sends Timothy and hears back and he says, no, it's fine, they're still standing firm in the Lord. Chapter uh, 3, verse 8. See, for now we really live. What a relief. It's as if I was dead until I knew this bit of news. Now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you? These are the levels of real emotional experience that Christians carry in their love for one another in the church and in the church all over the world, when we hear that Christian believers in another country are being severely persecuted because they follow Jesus, or when we hear that a church in another country is drifting away from the gospel as we've given it in the New Testament— These are the things that amongst the people whose greatest expectation is the return of Christ cause us the deepest sorrow and the greatest joy. Every Sunday when we see each other, oh, they're still worshiping. They're still going with the Lord Jesus. They're still hanging in there in their faith. Our actual presence together is a reminder of the joy that we share because we're all still going. The greatest joy, the greatest sorrow, depth of relationships leads to huge angst in the present day. And Paul's language throughout these verses just reflects that. Torn away from you. We made every effort to see you. Satan stopped us our greatest glory and joy, and on and on and on and on. This is not just a casual thing for Paul, what's happening to those believers. Number two, growth of the gospel, as it had happened in Thessalonica, leads to many, many trials. This was the course that the cause of Paul's concern, wasn't it? He explains that in the early part of chapter three, the trials had come, the persecution had come, Paul had told them it would and it did, and he was therefore worried that under pressure they would wander off. And when persecution comes, those who are vociferously placed against the gospel, in their enmity of the gospel, their position is clear. What is not clear is whether Christians under that pressure will stay the course. That's what Paul was worried about, and sometimes believers don't. That's that's the cause of his concern. And we've begun, I think, in in our culture, in our society, in the UK in 2020s, to experience and to see just a little bit more of what that's like. What is it like to stand absolutely, resolutely, firmly in our faith for the Lord Jesus, knowing what our culture and society sometimes thinks of that faith? That's pressure, isn't it? when the, the C of s was redefining marriage, that was pressure. We had to place ourselves definitively in one place or the other. Am I going to run with what the Bible teaches me or not? I remember reading in, in the newspaper the words describing me, written by a former ministerial colleague, how sad to see a shepherd abandoning his sheep and realizing the sense of shame, the sense of of pressure. We had another whiff of it when the government was closing down the churches throughout the pandemic, and, and somebody used proper procedure, a group of people, to test whether this was legal, and it was found to be illegal, that the government had overstepped. And when all that process was taking place, the pressure. Is, is it okay to use due process to test whether this is legal or not? Many said, no, no, that was a terrible thing to do. The pressure. There's a sense of shame that comes with following Jesus. That's persecution. Will we just melt away into the background and pretend, no, 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 no that's, that's not what I'm part of. Or will I say, no, I believe that too. That's always from the word go being the issue for Christian believers. Our culture wants to say our our faith, our spirituality is all an intensely personal and private matter and shouldn't ever be brought out into the public. But Jesus says, you must own me publicly and profess with your lips that I am your Savior. What pressure and trials come when the gospel is growing? So a church like ours, I was uh, doing my annual head count. Uh, Eleanor says she can spot when I'm counting all the heads in church. I don't know, hopefully none of you can spot it too easily, but there's 50 of us today. I'm doing my annual head count. And six, six years ago, in the middle of the summer, there'd have been 10 of us. So the gospel is growing here in ENC. We're kind of gathering Christian believers who believe the same thing and are wanting to be a force for the gospel in in our world. And when the gospel grows, then trials come. It is just inevitable. We apply to use a building on a Sunday morning and the owners of the building that we want to use say, no, you're, you're not in line with our values. There's a sense of shame attached. No, no, we, it, it would be shameful for us to have a church like yours even using our building. That, that would taint our reputation. That's shame, isn't it? So where do we place ourselves? Do we say, well, that's what I believe. And in our society, I, I, I strongly think that freedom of religious expression should be our, our go-to card. Muslims are encouraged and allowed to believe what they believe, and Buddhists, and, and this is what I believe. Why is it shameful? Do we stand up and ask that? Or do we cower and hide and melt away? Paul says where the gospel is growing, trials bring shame. Shame brings distance between believers. Oh, if you're going to make a big noise about that, I'm just going to slowly dissociate myself from you because I know that our society thinks that's pretty far, far gone, quite extreme, hard line. And… I I don't want to be associated with that. And Paul says when the Lord Jesus comes, he will see the Thessalonians as his glory and joy and crown because they've stayed firmly with the beliefs of the gospel. They've not been ashamed and melted away and just quietly gone off into a corner that's the dynamic of growth. It always brings trials. And Paul was so, I mean, almost beside himself with fear that his dear friends in Thessalonica would just melt away. Number three, strength of heart leads to blameless believers in the last day. So what's the, I've, I've, Poured out buckets of difficulty on you so far this morning from this passage. We've got pain and sorrow in our Christian relationships. We've got to stand firm in the midst of trials and persecution. What's the answer? What does Paul say to encourage us? Well, he prays in verses 11 to 13. It's a wonderful prayer. It's a prayer that clearly in Scripture is inspired by the Spirit and that God would answer. May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you, so physical presence with one another matters profoundly. May the Lord make your love for each other increase and overflow, and for everyone else, just as ours does for you, The answer to the pain of deep relationships is not to make them shallow, it's to make them deeper, but to be strong in them and more loving in them. May, and then this one, may He strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father. May He strengthen your hearts so that on that day, there you will be blameless. What's the answer? All the angst of our deeply loving relationships with other Christians, all the potential pressure of trials, what's the answer? A strong heart from God, that He would strengthen your heart so that you will remain blameless until the last day. Whatever the pain, whatever the sorrow we endure in this world, our expectation is that we will be there with all God's people. So, Lord, please strengthen my heart. what What does it look like to have your heart strengthened? If God strengthens your heart today, what will that be like? One way to cope with sorrow is just to become indifferent, but that would be to have a cold heart, wouldn't it? That's not what Paul wants. He wants a strong heart. Some people are crippled and unable to cope or function because the angst and the pain of following the Lord Jesus is too great, and they end up with a broken heart. But that's not what Paul wants. He wants a strong heart, a strengthened heart. No, a strong heart is utterly realistic in its expectations. It will feel all the pain of life in this world, as this passage shows us, to the full. It will feel all the pain, but keep going nonetheless, because my expectation is fixed on Jesus' return. A strong heart will carry all the concern for fellow believers, but will keep serving. A strengthened heart, if God answers Paul's prayer, will simply keep doing the same thing in love and service, month after month and year after year, for Christ and His people, until He comes back. There is a consistency about a strengthened heart. May He strengthen your heart so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God, so that you will keep going until that day. You get a sense of this kind of steadfast consistency at at a physical level in some people. I saw it this week in my 84-year-old father-in-law. He drives down from Inverness, has a cup of tea, and then two minutes later he's out in the garden hauling down a hedge off the front of the house and attacking it with secateurs and getting the whole thing into a bag. 84! No point in doing nothing. Keep going. Eleanor told him he wasn't allowed to paint the house any higher if he had to go up a ladder. He wasn't allowed to go up the ladder. He looked very crestfallen. He's been going up ladders for 84 years. Why would he not keep going up ladders? Ridiculous. Who do you think won? That's the consistency at a physical level. And what Paul is saying is if your heart is strengthened by Almighty God and the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a consistency at a spiritual level to keep serving, keep believing, keep loving whatever the cost, because Christ is coming back. That's my expectation, and that drives everything else in my Christian life. Amen.